When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Brighton last weekend, Manchester City. This Newcastle, they seem to be emulating the former rather than the latter. Joining me, Mark Chapman, to talk about the rejuvenated life at St James's Park. Our senior football writers, George Culkin and Ollie Kay. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Fans were celebrating at St James's Park today on hearing their clubs been bought by a consortium led by a Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund. One of the big things that they need to do is build a new training ground. Obviously we're delighted that Rubinho has, has come and joined our club. But in terms of the team, it's far inferior to Everton's squad in 2016. Dan's come in and he's had a huge impact in a very short period of time. He's got a big brief. Champions League cheese boards, that's all I can say. So, George, a new season, new horizons, new hope. So far, so good at uh, St James's Park. We're going to go behind the scenes, really, uh, and talk about the structure that they're putting in place, the transfers that have taken place, the transfers that may be still to come. It's all been very calm, hasn't it? Well, that's in some ways, that's the biggest sort of shock of all, Newcastle behaving like a sensible club, doing sensible things. It has been transformative over the past past few months certainly not least Newcastle staying up and and signing players in the transfer window but yeah when you look at the takeover and where they are uh, now they have quite a lot of serious people substantive people in positions of authority and it's it takes some getting used to who has driven the sensible approach where where has it come from well, the phrase that they've used right from the start is process-driven. And, I mean, that is an incredibly boring phrase when, you know, they, they come in and the narrative is it's suddenly they're the, they're the richest club in the world and they've got all this money behind them. But they've, I mean, they've been laborious, really, in, in a lot of the stuff that they've done. And you can kind of go right back to the start, to them keeping Steve Bruce for a couple of weeks when really sort of everybody at the club, probably including Steve Bruce himself you know, recognise that that was something that should have happened straight away, to getting his replacement. It's taken them six months or or so to get Dan Ashworth through the door and then the same with the CEO. I mean, this is just the board. This is the board as it uh, was was formulated with Amanda Staverley there, Jamie Rubin, and, of course, PIF, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. I mean, everything has had to go back to Saudi to be signed off. That's one thing. The interview processes have been handled by an outside agency and have been very, very rigorous for both management and, sorry, for both um, director of football and CEO. And so it's taken a long time for them to get where they are. But um, I think you would you would suggest so far so good and that it's been it's been worth it. Is there also, Ollie, an external structure that they have to work within? Obviously, I'm mentioning FFP, but, you know, do you think they're they're obviously conscious of, of the restraints of the of the environment they have to work in. They are. They've said that from the start, that because of FFP, they wouldn't be able to do what Manchester City did in 
2008, what Chelsea did in 2003, post-2003, it's a different environment now. It's a lot harder for, for any club to build up from a lower base. And uh, I mean, to be honest, I think it's almost impossible to, to, to build up from a lower base and become a super club stroke super team overnight. That has become very difficult. Newcastle are aware of that. But we also know that the, there's a fair amount of leeway with financial fair play. You see, you see Everton having very clearly overspent, but got away with it in many regards. You see Manchester City having, you know, maybe taken a few shortcuts and cut a few corners perhaps in in terms of FFP and UEFA, and they appear to have largely got away with it. But they also very clearly appear to have have their own financial discipline. And it's quite refreshing, really. I mean, there's, there's elements of the takeover that I think most of us have um, expressed reservations about or criticisms of but it's um I, I i like the way they are operating in terms of the recruitment and i think if anything they probably could push it more everton in fact were, were one of the examples i was going to use i mean people are kind of constantly saying why aren't they behaving like man city one thing they're very conscious about not doing is behaving like everton mm. i mean that is that is an example that is writ large for everybody to see what can happen if you spend too much too quickly chasing a dream fine uh, you say Ollie, they may they may have you know quote unquote got away with it to a certain extent except it doesn't feel like they're getting away with it now or they or that they got away with it last season in terms of the restrictions that were on their spending then and they just don't want to do that they don't want to splurge and then deal with the consequences of bad decisions i mean you can't you can't get everything right in the transfer market clearly but their philosophy has always been a sustainability model newcastle have spent a lot of money this year probably 150 million something like that or committed to spending that much money in transfers they've brought nothing in they've brought peanuts mm. in a couple of million here and there and they want to have money to spend in the next transfer window and the window after that and the window after that. And obviously by that point, the idea is that they're bringing their own money in, whether through commercial deals and sponsorship deals, which by and large hasn't happened yet, and also eventually to bring money in through player sales. They just have not done that over the last few years because the squad hasn't been recycled. They haven't done any of that. So... They have spent a lot of money already and brought very little in, but they know that that's not sustainable long-term, medium-term. Are they starting, though, and George, you go first and then, Ollie, but are they starting from a higher base than, say, Everton were when Everton started their process with Mashiri's investments, i.e. the ground is bigger, they don't have a worry about looking to move, and they are a one-club city, which we have talked about before. They're not competing within within the same city as Everton are with Liverpool. So four commercial deals going forward and actually just match day revenue, are they starting at a higher base? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not so sure. I mean, there's been very little to no money spent on infrastructure at St James's over the last decade and more. So money does need to be spent on the ground because it's it's become very tatty. They've done a bit of that in the summer, just, you know, in terms of kind of giving things a lick of paint and putting new floors in and putting kind of banners around the stadium and things like that. One of the big things that they need to do is build a new training ground. Newcastle's training ground is barely fit for purpose. A player last season sort of said to me, half-joking, and the club denied this, but basically that players doing rehab had to fit in their sessions around what was happening at the local 
David Lloyd Jim and the Zumba classes, fitting in their rehab around that. And so there's a lot of money that does need to be spent on that. The problem with the stadium is that, is that it doesn't feel big enough. It's already sold out. And so what do they do? They've said that they won't look at a new stadium, which I'm very pleased about. But, you know, that is a conversation for, for further down the line. Do they try to try to expand? And I'm not sure the team, when they came in, were bottom of the Premier League, were absolutely bottom and flailing. And since coming up to the Premier League have been every season, no matter what the league table has said, every season has been a struggle or it's had long periods of struggle in it. And, you know, the other thing about Newcastle is, and I know we'll come on to talk about this, but everything has been stripped back to the bone. And so it's not quite starting from scratch because they're in the Premier League, but in terms of departments, there's very little there. And so it is that is a rebuild from top to bottom. So there's a huge amount of work to be done. Ollie? Yeah, in, in terms of where they're building from, you look at the squad that George has spoken about, the club and infrastructure and so on, and the stadium's great, but hasn't been expanded or renewed really. The training ground, you know, as has been made clear for, for years, has been sub, substandard. That there's been a lot of need, investment needed there. But in terms of the, the team, it's far inferior to Everton's squad in 2016. It's inferior, I would say, to Manchester City's squad in 2008 when the Abu Dhabi takeover happened. It's certainly nothing like the Chelsea squad of 2003, which was already full of very, very, very good players and and suddenly had a lot more of them. So in terms of where they're building from, it's very, very difficult to go from being a sort of lower mid-table team to an upper-table Premier League team. It's, it's very difficult if you to go from a team that gets 40-odd points in a season to being a team that gets 70-odd points. You don't just add three good players and, and it works like that. Eddie Howe, I think, is a big part of this in terms of had they done what certain other clubs have done when they've been taken over and... If it had been very agent-driven, very advisor-driven, as has happened not just with new owners, but often with new chairmen, new directors of football at certain clubs, sometimes even with a new manager, you suddenly get a very sort of starstruck approach that's really very clearly a case of agents having the ear of the, the CEO or the manager or the sporting director, whatever. And with Newcastle, I think getting somebody as sensible and pragmatic as Eddie Howe in right from the start and then getting somebody as sensible and pragmatic as Dan Ashworth it's been sensible right from the start everybody I remember when the takeover happened people were immediately speculating joking in some ways about which players Newcastle were going to look for in January and it was going to be Coutinho Gareth Bale Deli Alley it was going to be everybody expensive big name big hitters that, that had fallen out of favour elsewhere and they were going to pay through the nose and it's been the opposite of that and I think that's really really impressive and in terms of what else it's different to Jamie Rubin who's on the who's you know part of this new regime was part of that QPR regime which acted behaved ludicrously really after the Tony Fernandez takeover a decade ago and he has probably seen exactly what you don't do it's probably been the ultimate example of what you don't do and it's just been so sensible. It's been really considered, and as I say, it's almost almost too sensible. You want it, you you, you may you maybe want them to be a. Where's Balotelli? Yeah, Where's yeah, Balotelli? Exactly. exactly. You could you, you could have imagined they, you could have imagined them going for Balotelli. No, definitely, definitely, and I totally agree. So, I mean, I am the voice of Newcastle doom, and I realise that, and certainly have been. But one of the things that I that I love about 
the club since they came back up was the the group of players that kind of originally Benitez got together and that sort of feeling that got them out of the championship, often sort of having to act in spite of what was happening at the top of the club, keeping it together during, during some very, very difficult seasons. You know, a lot of those players should have been moved on but weren't because the club decided that it was easier and cheap, cheaper to keep those uh, players rather than kind of re- reinvest. I mean, particularly when the takeover, you know, for mitigation, particularly when the takeover was lingering on and the pandemic hit and, and all that. But what the club did in January and what they've carried on doing is sort of build on that ethos. So although some of those players have now started to leave, that sort of spirit that was in the camp, it's indistinguishable. You know, that sort of feeling that brought the club up is still there and they're building on it. And so the people, there's been a, you know, a very clear no dickhead sort of policy in who they brought in. I would say, however, that they pretty much rang everybody. If you were a player and available, they will have spoken to their a- agents in January. It was total chaos. It was very successful chaos. Oli, spot on. I mean, Eddie Howe was effectively the sporting director in, in January you took him away from the training ground probably too you know a bit too much but they got through it and they got through it with that sort of spirit there and i i love that because albeit it's been really tough over the pre, over previous seasons they have been a team to admire that you know it's not it's not been full of hateful characters people desperate to get away and they've kind of managed to build on that and that is something that you know that i've really enjoyed and as they've as they're getting better um, you know, the good thing is that the players coming in have kind of got a reaction out of those players already here and they've grown with it too. So it's very, very different. They haven't gone out and brought the big names who've then suddenly, uh, you know, sort of upset things in terms of wages or attitude or whatever. It's been a very, very grounded revolution. We've talked infrastructure, we've talked squads, which brings us to the two men who, who are responsible for either side of that in Darren Eels the new CEO, and Dan Ashworth, who is the sporting director. More people are probably going to be aware of Ashworth and his work, whether that be at Brighton or the FA before that. Um, Why have they gone for it? So we'll come on to him in a little bit. Eels is fascinating, uh, I think, as an appointment. Why him and what is he bringing to the table? So what he's done at Atlanta has has really been to to establish a club, get them set up, and they they won something very very early on in their development. He's been very visible um, over there, uh, engaging with supporters. And when I spoke to Amanda Staveley and Murdad Gudusi in February, they said they want somebody who's going to think outside of the normal parameters of football just because it's worked somewhere else doesn't mean it'll work again they didn't just want the same faces from the Premier League they need somebody to drive the business commercially there is no commercial department there hasn't been a commercial department I mean I'm slightly exaggerating but not by much because everything has been surrounded it's been sports direct or nothing effectively and so they they are starting from scratch in that sense and they want people to to, to, to sort of challenge the status quo. And I think he's a fascinating appointment. As I say, one of the things that's fascinating about him is that he has been so visible. He's been at the forefront in talking to fans and supporters. That, again, is a, is a huge contrast um, to, to, what's, to, to, you know, to how it's been here. So, yeah, we'll see how, how it goes. But I think he's a fascinating appointment. I, I mean, I was in Atlanta a, a couple of years ago, Ollie, and... 
walking around a, a neighbourhood not far from, from downtown Atlanta, not far from the stadium that all the Atlanta, well, certainly the, the football team and the American football team both play in. And there were Atlanta United scarves in the in the windows of houses in this suburb from downtown Atlanta. Now you don't often see that walking around American American towns and cities that have you know a big a big baseball team and a big NFL team and a, and a basketball team as well. You don't often see the MLS scarves in the windows. So and they were getting sixty odd thousand to their games in the new stadium in Atlanta. Now that is a progressive football club, or has mm. been under his uh, under his leadership. I don't know about uh, Atlanta United. I know I know that that he comes with a good reputation, and that they are considered one of the new clubs that that's built up very very quickly and impressively in um, in in MLS. And it it's interesting, really, just to see where clubs recruit chief executives from in some ways. Yeah. It, you know, yes. you, you, yeah. you know, you've seen Manchester United run by an investment banker for the last for the last nine years and then his deputy also an investment banker takes over and yet you you know when Newcastle are looking they go for somebody who has worked in football fairly low profile in this country he was at, he was at Tottenham before and West Brom I think before that but Eels has built his reputation really in in MLS and I think you can probably do a lot more with a club maybe a new club with a with a blank canvas but that's probably Again, what slightly what Newcastle feels like now. They've sort of told me that they kind of looked at up to forty candidates, and they looked in every, as you say, Ollie, in terms of the football and business now, it is so so different to to two or three four decades ago. They spoke to people in business, they spoke to people in in the media, and this is what they've, you know, this is what they've come back to. I, again, one of the 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 phrases that they use all the time is is about building a skyscraper that they want architects and that they have to get the foundations right. And that applies to both Dan Ashworth and to Darren Eels, that they're seen as architects, people that can build something. And when you are talking about Newcastle, whether it's the commercial departments or whether it's the football departments, you're talking about building effectively from scratch. I mean, if you just have to go back to, to the Ashley era and Lee Charnley, the managing director, was the only board member effectively at the club there the only senior board member so they want to bring money into the club they need to bring money into the club but they also have to get all that stuff set up in the first place that that word architecture i've i've been speaking to a lot of people this week for an article on on another club which is perceived to lack uh that that sort of football architecture <laughs> oh oh now who could that be <laughs> but that that word architecture you know if you speak to people at certain clubs they they come up with that that word architecture and i can imagine a decade ago people would have cringed and go oh it's david brent business business speak yeah. and i think a decade on people know what know what you mean by that and when you talk about architects cultural architects that kind of thing you can be talking about you know, uh, a Darren Eels, you could be talking about a Dan, Dan Ashworth. I think you're certainly talking about an Eddie Howe, who is very much of that architect builder mentality. I think it's, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised and impressed, really, that, that they've brought in architect builder types, because normally what happens and, with these takeovers, Man City, a good example of this, really, QPR, certainly a good example, and Everton, you get a first wave of rushed appointments and it's often people 
you know, it's often based on a relationship or, you know, a pre-existing relationship or an advice from an agent or whatever. And those people generally, you generally go through chief executives or sporting directors or whatever fairly quickly until you start finding the right people. And I think we've seen that. The other Brent Brentian word that they've <laughs> kind of used um, quite a lot is alignment. Yeah, yeah. And, but that is been so important at Newcastle. I mean, it sounds it sounds so ridiculous. But one of the great pleasures about going to St James's Park now is the fact that everybody in the stadium, barring the opposition, all want the same thing. And I know that sounds it sounds kind of r- ridiculous, but when you've had a decade and more of supporters chanting for the owner to go, when you've had often s- similar sort of sentiments being directed towards the m- manager, you've had fans there going under sufferance because they know that what they're going to see is liable to, sp- mm. to spoil their weekend, that when they've not felt any kind of love or affection back from the club, when the whole idea of a club is being strained in the first place, to have everybody there wanting the same thing is still incredibly powerful. And that alignment is also, from this point, hopefully, is also there from the top down as well in terms of decision-making process. For so long, they've had people at the club who may have been very, very good and often were, but there was no sense of direction, there was no sense of ambition, there was no plan, there was no great idea beyond survival, and it's not conducive to excellence. And so suddenly you've got everybody in the stadium wanting the same thing, and it feels very powerful. I want to come on to that match day experience, because obviously you've written about that, George, and we can we can delve into that a bit, and we will in a second. Just one on Ashworth. I know everybody wants to talk transfers, and, and transfers are the sexy things and that'll get you know it'll get people listening and all of this and rumors yeah. and so on and so forth but he's responsible presumably for more than just player recruitment this is yeah. about this is oh, about yeah. getting a a much maligned and neglected academy system up and running presumably Exactly that, exactly that. And, you know, transfers, recruitment wasn't Ashworth's big thing at Brighton. I mean, I think people sort of forget that. doesn't mean he wasn't involved in it. But really, the first thing, there are so many things that he has to do at Newcastle. It's sort of unbelievable. But the first thing he has to do is get people talking, get people organised. The way it's been put to me as well in the past is that, you know, Newcastle have all these departments, but they're, they're siloed, they're on their own, they're not talking. So who is the person that decides... You know, does the academy play the way the first team play? What is the idea behind getting loans out of the building? There's this story that that Rafa Benitez tells when he arrived, when Newcastle were going down, and he was a- unable to to prevent it. He says that he spoke to people, and so said, "Are there anybody? Is there anybody not in the first team squad that I should kn- that I should know about?" Ivan Tony was out on loan at, the, at that point. Nobody mentioned Tony, and so that sounds like it's a self justificatory thing for Tony moving on and now being in the Premier League. Of course, these things happen, but that can't happen anymore. You know, Newcastle have a good young player at the moment, Elliot Anderson. He may very well stay in the first team squad now because of John Joe Shelby's injury. But what is the pathway for him? What's the plan? That's Ashworth. The training ground, that's Ashworth. Getting the women's team absolutely front and centre, fundamental to the whole club, that's Ashworth. He's got a huge amount to do. And yeah, I mean, he has been making calls. They haven't signed anybody since he's arrived. But people have left. And that's been really important because, uh, as I said earlier, for too long, people have been hanging around the club and not moving on. So he has a huge amount to do. But he also does have a, you know, he's got a, a good contact book and he is he's certainly doing all that. 
Uh, you're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with me, Mark Chapman. I'm with you four times a week this season. This podcast obviously all about a club with a sense of direction. If you want a podcast about one with no sense of direction, then this is it. Hello, I'm Ian Irving, host of the Athletics Manchester United podcast, Talk of the Devils. Join me, Andy Mitten, Laurie Whitwell and Carl Anker every week, but particularly this week, as we gear up to the huge Liverpool game at Old Trafford on Monday night. We'll preview that match without paying any reference to our meeting with our rivals from last season, of course, and we'll also assess the latest twists and turns in Manchester United's roller coaster of a summer transfer window. You won't get better insight on United anywhere else, and as you'll find, you won't get better cocktails chat either. Just search for Talk of the Devils wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. George Culkin and Oli Kay with us. Let's talk about the match day experience. The thing, and again, it comes off the back of the trail we've just heard, Oli, because you can't help but compare at the moment. But but the unity of a match day experience should should not be underestimated as an effect on the players and the playing staff uh, when you see what's going on elsewhere. And you, and you forget how long it has been since Newcastle have all been pulling in the same direction. Newcastle is one of those clubs where, you know, as you said earlier, it's it's a one club city. Everybody seems to obsess about the city. the The stadium sits on a hill and uh, you know overlooks the city centre, and it feels like it feels like it's you know that that is the beacon, the cathedral of the, of the city, and all other such cliches. But it has not been a club which has been united with a with, with a lowercase U for a long time. As as George said, it's it's been fractious. Um, well, you, you could say that. The, the fan base has been united in in terms of wanting Ashley out for a long time, but but that that doesn't mean you get a a warm feel good factor at, at the stadium. The number of times I, mean, I don't go to St James's anything like as often as 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 George, but one thing I I always feel is I felt the last sort of fifteen years is if you got this right, you know if you got this right, how good good would this um, fan base be? How good would the atmosphere be? Because even when even when things are really have been really grim, there's always been that sort of slight crackle of of, of hope or something in the in the air at, at Newcastle. And I think we, when we talk about fan bases and atmospheres, and sometimes the atmospheres which are the best, people talk about what Anfield is like at its best. Anfield, when it's in the times when Liverpool have been a divided club, which you know go back to Hicks Gillette era in particular but even late periods under certain managers it's a really negative place 
And I think the more passionate the fan base, the more bleak things get when things are really bad. So when things at Newcastle are as positive as they suddenly feel, and don't forget, you know, they, they didn't exactly qualify for the Champions League last season, but everything is suddenly far more encouraging than it's been for years and years. It just feels so positive and the, there is a feel-good factor around the, the whole club. You can even see it in in the reporters, in, in what George is right, George is having to find new adjectives for you know for words that mean happy and positive and exciting rather than miserable, <laughs> bleak, etc. It's um, I'm no longer the Pope of Mope. I'm the Pope of Hope. Exactly. It's very difficult. To, <laughs> it's very difficult to get to grips with. What? <laughs> um, so th- so that match day experience that you talked about, th- th- the first one of this season. How different? How different did it feel? Extraordinary. I mean, if I go back to the last game of last season, the Arsenal game, I've spoken to a lot of people around the club who've been there for 25 years, 30 years for a piece I've written recently. Everybody says that was the best ever. And that is including Keegan years and Barcelona, the Barcelona match. And I would say wow. the same. The atmosphere was incredible. And you have to give huge credit to the fans group War Flags, who fill the stadium uh, every week now. And um, But, you know, did did some very special stuff for that game. And for once in that match, the way I ex- expressed it was that the team played like the crowd sounded. And when you've got a team that's as good as the crowd can be on a good day, it does have that unstoppable feeling. And I don't think there'd have been a better atmosphere anywhere than there was for Newcastle versus Nottingham Forest on the first day of the season. I don't. Just in terms of that noise and that feeling of uplift. And Ollie's absolutely... Absolutely right. I mean, it, people have been going to St James's Park under sufferance for a very long time, walking into the stadium, knowing that it was going to be the worst part of the weekend, not the best. And that is a horrible feeling to have when you're talking about football, and you're talking about something which should be, you know, which should be life affirming, not the opposite. Yeah, they're a million miles away from the club that they want to be and the team they want to be. But people are still, still have that sort of pinch yourself sense of enthusiasm. I was at Brighton last weekend and I was actually looking forward to going to that you know stadium which has been the scene of some absolutely rank Newcastle <laughs> performances in recent seasons but I was looking forward to it and in spite of the train train strike and you know Newcastle fans I know had some of them had terrible journeys getting there and back but you're going there looking forward to it and you can't put a value on that but for all that, when when we talk about the match day experience, that's that's not just fans and atmosphere. That's actually people who work at the club actually smiling rather than you know fearing that they might lose their job or you know get a wage cut or whatever. It's the whole experience. Yeah, I mean, so I did I did this piece around around the Forest game, and I wanted to do this, you know, basically a sort of day in the life of the stadium. And I talked to people who've been there. I talked to the kit man. I talked to the groundsman, and you hear all these great, funny stories about sort of obsession. The groundsman saying that his you know his wife Sharon accused him of loving grass more than he loved her, and he didn't really disagree. I mean, so you have those kind of peculiar stories that you do get in these sort of institutions, and but. Also that feeling that for a long time they've been trying to do their best in very, you know, knowing that ultimately the ambition of the club was to be 16th or 17th and that everybody everybody would be happy with it. But as, as part of it, I spoke to the head chef and he's, he's the head chef and he's in charge of 11 kitchens and quite, kind of quite amusingly he's been there for 11 years and he's only watched 10 minutes of football because of course he's always, you know, being very, very busy. But he said that Part of in part of that stadium, 
they've got very expensive packages for uh, fans to come in paying hundreds of pounds or thousands of pounds over the course of the season doing quote-unquote fine dining for them could never get a budget for plates for new plates and so albeit they were really trying very hard to do all this delicious food coming out on chipped crockery and, and so, so on and so forth anyway he said that a few years ago you know they have cheese boards at all these lounges in the stadium so forgive this slight di- digression they have these cheese boards in every lounge in the stadium so there's lots of cheese boards and as happens if you wash cheese boards eventually they start falling apart and he went to his boss and said look we need money for cheese boards this is health and safety we've got to get new cheese boards and it's like no sorry there's no budget for cheese boards and it's like what the fuck (laughs) so so he says that on one of his days off there's this big storeroom on level four at st james's park he went in there and he found all of these chairs stacked up and they're chairs that have desks attached to them on a hinge and I know where they've come from. They've come from the press room, right? right. I mean, I know yeah. they have because they use, yeah. they still use those chairs in the press room. So you can balance your laptop on it. So the chef, the head chef of St. James' Park, went home, got his screwdriver, brought it in, and unscrewed tens upon tens of hinged tables on chairs, and he repurposed them as cheese boards. And that was the that was the match day experience in the posh lounges at Mike Ashley's Newcastle United. And so he was using his ingenuity there to do, but it's fucking terrible. Anyway, so he said a few weeks ago he's complained <laughs> again, and he's been given four grand for cheese boards. So that that then makes you wonder how much money do, do cheese boards cost? But you know, Newcastle United's cheese boards. Champions League cheese boards. That's all I can say. Right. And I guarantee you've listened to this podcast. You've heard us talk about Darren Eels and Dan Ashworth. We've talked about Eddie Howe. We've talked about architecture, skyscrapers, how to run a football club. And I guarantee the one thing you will remember from this podcast more than any other is Newcastle and their brand new cheese boards. George, Ollie, we will leave it there. Thank you very much. And remember that for the very latest on Newcastle and indeed every Premier League team and maybe their cheese boards, you can head to The Athletic, subscribe for just a pound a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash footballpod and stay tuned to this podcast feed. We'll have a brand new episode for you that drops tomorrow afternoon. The Athletic.